Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Dean Irwin, Anglo-Jews in Medieval England. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England from Ellsworth to Prince Philip. But today we're not reviewing a consort, but rather we are interviewing the historian Dr. Dean Irwin about the Anglo-Jews in medieval England. Now, for our patrons in the special episode in Star Chamber Tears, we do a mini-series called Local Legends, and our latest one is on Licorice of Winchester, who is an Anglo-Jewish moneylender from the 13th century. So we thought it'd be interesting to learn a bit more about the subject. Generally, it's been quite pertinent to uh, some of our monarchs, some of our consorts that we've done in this series, uh, particularly a certain uh, <coughs> Edward I. Yeah. Might yeah. not come out of this terribly well. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure he had his reasons that Dean will fill us in on. <laughs> so we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by historian Dean Irwin. Dean, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've met Dean before. I've met, met Ali before. That's a strange coincidence. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think, yeah, that sounded creepier than I intended it to. Um, <laughs> the first time we ever did anything publicly where we went to the history fair. No, it was the first sort of thing you really did after your accident and you went to a history fair. I think you'd suggested to me that we should go to this history fair and record the Queen Elizabeth II podcast live and I didn't fancy it, so I didn't go. You went by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, yeah, it was nice to meet you then and again now. Yes, I I got rather a lot of mead from that uh, history fair and thus uh, remember very little of it, but I I hope I made a better impression than I uh, subsequently did. (laughs) I don't remember the mead, but it was was definitely that kind of place, wasn't it? Um, So could you just introduce yourself to uh, the listeners in terms of who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm... Uh, Dr. Dean Irwin, I'm technically retired from academia, Um, I completed my PhD and then promptly left, uh, but still uh, maintain an active interest, pottering on all things uh, Jewish, particularly in the reign of everyone's favourite king, Henry III, um, and uh, to a lesser extent that his son, but I I don't think we need to touch on him really, Uh, and uh, all all things Jewish, and, and the more Jewish the better. Now, you see, I'm disappointed now because I was going to say how obviously you're also a long-term Rex Factor listener. Anyone who's listened uh, long-term to the series both might have heard your name mentioned before when you've messaged him, but also you were one of the people behind the uh, History According to Ali episode yes. when uh, Ali had his accident. Oh, yes, I brilliant. listened to all of the medieval episodes for that, and I feel that could explain why I subsequently, subsequently became a medieval historian. It was <laughs> completely insane. <laughs> Because quite uh, scarily, yeah. we've been doing it so long that you I think you say you were doing your A-levels when you were first yes. listening. Yes, wow. I, failed, I even failed them once. <laughs> and then three degrees, a job. It's scary. Oh, and my word. God, that makes, that makes us old, then. <laughs> I think you should speak for yourself there. <laughs> but yeah. so I was going to say, ah, oh, now we're we're creating the next uh, generation of academics. But you're saying you're you're out of that game now. You're doing <laughs> something else. Uh, yes, regrettably. <laughs> <laughs> On to 
well, the, the Jews in England. So I guess first question is, when do uh, we first have a sort of a recognisable Jewish population in England? Uh, so so the um, as far as we can tell, there's no Jewish population uh, in pre-1066 England. Uh, there is some evidence for Jews in Roman Britain. Uh, that is very patchy and may or may not have been true. There might have been one or two, but in general, no. Uh, for, for the pre-conquest period, we have a um, sizable amount of um, thought relating to, to Jews, but no actual Jews themselves. So so um, it's really a, a feature of the uh, Norman conquest, and, and it seems to be the case that William the Conqueror, or his son William Rufus, brought them over from Rouen, uh, at some point in the decades after uh, the, uh, the 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 Norman Conquest, so certainly there's a, a community in London by the 1090s. Uh, the, there's a delightful scene in William of Malmesbury where William Rufus tries to get get his his bishops and his Jews to argue, and if the Jews win, uh, he'll convert to their sect, i.e., become a Jew. <laughs> uh, presumably apocryphal to um to, to highlight uh, William's lax morals. Uh, William Rufus, that is not William of Malmesbury's Lax uh-huh. Morals, uh, I, I, but but uh, it's just an interesting uh, caveat and fun. Um, so, yes, product of the Norman Conquest, when precisely is unclear, but certainly by the 1090s. And then there's some uh, attacks on the Jewish communities around the time of the First Crusade in 1096. So there's an influx then. And if there wasn't a substantial Jewish community in London by the 1090s, there certainly was following that second wave of immigration in sort of 1096. So as we sort of go into like the, I guess, the late 11th century, 12th century, what's the sort of legal and social status of Jews? You're saying there how there's a certain sort of tax on them when the First Crusade happened. So what's what's the situation for them in England? Uh, so in England, um, as in most places, uh, attacks are very rare throughout the, the period that we're going to be talking about, not just, uh, just in the end of the 11th century. Um, they do happen, there are, uh, flashes in the pan, which do do result in anti-Jewish violence, which we'll, we'll come on to. But in the main, um, Jews are here. They're they're relatively safe for most of that, the period. That doesn't mean there's not low-level anti-Semitism at all times or, or, or low-level uh, hatred. But it's incredibly difficult to sustain that, and certainly you can't sustain it over a quarter of a millennium. Um, so in that respect, uh, the, the Jews occupy... An interesting position, but also while they have the support of the king, uh, a, a, a very privileged one. They're, they're protected um, as as quote the queen, the king's Jews. They're given lots of protections. The laws of Edward the Confessor, which are written in the reign of Henry the First, say that the, the, the king's Jews, providing that he can enforce that, uh, which has special connotations for the anarchy. But certainly, they occupy a special and privileged position for for most of the 12th century, and are largely protected and largely flourish uh, in England during the 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 12th century uh, and there's a nice cross-channel community as well both in london and rouen they tend to be the same members of both communities you have a house in both and, and it's only really in the anarchy uh, of stephen's reign where, when geoffrey of anjou takes over normandy that that breaks for a bit but in the reign of henry the second it comes back and then uh, following king john's uh, loss of normandy in 1204 that breaks more or less completely but you've got this nice cross-channel community for for most of the 12th century and it's much like the the upper elite of the uh, of the christian society as well they've got vested interests on both sides of the channel um it's not particularly helpful to try and f- divide them between english and norman jews 
at this point. Fundamentally, they're both the same, and actually, for most of the period, um, it, it is difficult to tell mm. uh, the difference. When Jews start to move outside of London, it comes a bit different. You've obviously not got those same historic links to the continent, but still, um, they're here. They're here to say, and they settle uh, relatively quickly. So, and what's the price for that protection? What th- that's when we get these taxes. We do in the 13th century. In the, the 12th century, it's less clear what happened. So, uh, Henry the Third, uh, Henry the First, sorry, Freudian slip. Uh, Henry the First issues a protection, a charter of liberties uh, at some point in his reign it's not quite clear when which is not dissimilar to what he does for the christian society as well he's got a coronation Mm. uh, charter and everything later in the century um you have to pay for one of those it's not at all clear whether they did in in sort of uh, henry's reign in john's reign it's four thousand marks presumably they pay but equally the the crown has a vested interest these are in an economic uh, minority as much as anything uh, and the best way to to get your new uh, acquisition up and running and at a high level is to to have a, a, an economic class which includes uh, jews uh, not just as lenders and certainly not earlier in the, the 12th century they're primarily uh, merchants uh, dealers in tr- uh, cloth commodity traders dealers in coin and bullion so all of the things that you need to get an economy to flourish it's that two-way street it's not just just taxes and actually it's not really until the end of the 12th century that the crown cottons onto taxation at all so it's like they're just uh yeah they're little drivers of the economy yeah um, they're, they're a minority, but an important minority. I think we see that in the, the records of the 12th and 13th centuries. Actually, they, they do occupy a, a more substantial place in royal records and records more generally than we would expect from their numbers. Mm. Um, and they were always back well above their average, uh, or at least some do, the wealthiest do. Why is this um, sort of special status of the king's Jews um, done by henry the first and i guess subsequent monarchs as well like what's the motivation for the king in doing that in singling them out in that way well to, to some extent you have to um I, I mean we're in england but also we're in christendom um there is no there's no religious minority in christendom uh, <laughs> other than um the, than the jews so in that respect they they're, they're always looking for a lord to protect them hmm. so so they move steadily east uh, and west uh, to try and get that protection so so uh, there's a two-way street obviously um the, there are advantages for both sides jews are very different for, from christian society in the sense that they don't uh, tend to by the by the end of the first millennium set down routes through land ownership there's lots of things to stop them uh, having permanent land ownership so that that presents quite a a, a different um, scenario than we might see with just uh, settlers moving from one area to another you're always going to be beholden on your overlord for protection so in that respect it, it makes a lot of sense for jews to seek out rich and powerful men to um protect them and England is particularly good for that because actually it's one of the most stable kingdoms. It's got your central bureaucracy. It's got it's got everything you need to flourish. Whereas in France, mm. you, you're always looking for a different lord. Uh, there's lots of mm. it, so you've not got. Although people talk of French jury, actually, which 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 lord are they accountable to? And with all the fighting that's going on, it can be very difficult space to occupy. Whereas England, rebellion's relatively rare, and when it is. 
Jews aren't always targeted, although they are targeted along with other minorities. So, so that, for, from their perspective, England makes a lot of sense. And from the Crown's sense, uh, it, it, it makes sense because of uh, things like Augustinian uh, teachings of theology. So, so um, tolerating the Jews, uh, learning from them as keepers of the old knowledge, the Old Testament, almost all made sense financially. Although not all Jews were rich, a very small minority were. Um, and that in turn means you've got lots of advantages there. And and to be honest, there's no reason not to. There's lots of pros for, for both sides. You mentioned about the different trades that Jews were doing, and this is something that surprised me doing the research for Licoritia. There's a perception that the Jewish role in medieval England was as moneylenders and financial services, but actually that's not necessarily representative of the wider Jewish community. Yes, I mean, I wrote my PhD on money lending and money lending records. So in that respect, I have a vested interest in everyone at all times understanding <laughs> just talk about uh, understanding this aspect of Jewish life. And that's the thing you learn as a historian of the Jews of medieval England is that every single person is an expert on that topic. Um, they will regale <laughs> you with tales of, of uh, Jewish money lending um, and it doesn't make me weep at all. <laughs> But yes, every, fundamentally, you need everything that you need to sustain a community. Um, that that that's just a, a thing. The only issue is that the records are specifically set up to favour money lending because that's what the crown has an interest in. So mm. it's often quite difficult to access these other trades purely because the documentary sources aren't there to to tell us about it. But we've got wonderful evidence for, from the twelve forty. Talage, uh, the Worcester Talage, for example, which details ritual slaughters in Canterbury and Gloucester, so 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 kosher meat production. Um, there's evidence, archaeological evidence, just been done from Oxford, which does seem to suggest that, broadly speaking, uh, halalic law relating to to food consumption was observed. Uh, whether it was uh, kosher is another matter, uh, but but certainly. There was nothing in there that you wouldn't expect to find um, in a Jewish diet. My favourite is a, a pair of Jews from London who in the 1280s import a load of wine from uh, Gascony, which is produced according to the Jewish custom. Um, and they once sat down and worked this out and it equated to roughly 9,000 bottles. And they worked it out <laughs> after the pandemic, which I felt was a good number of bottles to get you through. <laughs> uh, but but I, I presume this was for communal use and possibly sale hmm. onwards as well. And certainly the Jews are, are, are well well connected to the, the, the mercantile elite of cities like London. So yeah, everything that you need to conduct a, uh, run a city uh, and run a community is within the Jewish community. It's just that we we struggle to see it, mm. um, and obviously they have their own courts, which, with a few exemptions, uh, are allowed to run according to Jewish law. And we've got wonderful evidence being coming out now as a result of the work of people like Pinkas Roth, editing Responsa, and um, the questions and answers that go to and from a rabbi, uh, and these are giving wonderful insights into into Jewish daily life in a way that we've not been able to get from the Latin sources. If we have this conversation in 10 years' time, the answer might be very different. We might know a lot more about Jewish daily life. It's just that everyone's been very sensible and looked at the money lending records first, and I highly endorse that approach, but now it's time to perhaps uh, t take a brief break um, before then returning wholeheartedly to the money lending. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But so I guess presumably the, the focus on the money, like you're saying, there's more... I guess easy, not easy access, but sort of the, the records make it easier, I guess, to get that at the top. But also, presumably, from the Crown's perspective, that's where the big money is in terms of the 
you know, like now of the financial sector, yeah. I guess. So, so from eleven ninety four, the crown regulates quite um, heavily the 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 production of records. So they're always stored in a chest, um, or at least one copy of it is stored in a chest. So we always have access to it. And when the um, Lincoln Arca, um, the Lincoln chest was um, enrolled in twelve forty, uh, there were about nine hundred debts on that, of which about a dozen um, were for more than six hundred pounds. So there were lots of lots of really small debts for for less than a pound, but but it's those big ones, those six hundred pounders, which really account for most of the wealth. And these are also uh, tend to be for the big monastic houses. A lot of great houses during the twelfth century are undergoing vast rebuilding projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peterborough, for example, uh, is St Albans, various other ones. Quite a lot of Jewish money goes into paying for those. Um, which um, is conveniently omitted from some histories. Uh, but there you go, Jews are, are responsible for that. And then in the 13th century, they are the, the monastic houses are, are big in the purchase of debts um, and enforcing them um, against Christian debtors. But it's why by the time of the Reformation, uh, they've got a third of the land in England. A lot of it uh, does come from the acquisition of um lands through through the purchase of debts during this mm-hmm. period and it puts a lot of people out uh, but but yes the churches um, and the church in england uh, certainly has a, a great deal of involvement with the jews in that respect so what are the rules around money lending and debts because before looking t- into this i'd assume that the reason that we associate jews with money lending in the medieval period is because there were laws barring christians from doing so but here we've got the church buying up debts later. We've got Edward I using Italian bankers. So you know, what, what's going on? What's the deal? Yeah. Uh, the rules of the game, broadly speaking, are providing you don't get caught um, or at least prosecuted. Uh, everything's fair game. Oh, that old game. <laughs> um, so for, for the 13th century, although everyone says, oh, usually it's banned to Christians, so Jews become moneylenders. Actually, the worst moneylenders uh, in 13th century England are members of the Royal Chancery. Um, they've literally got access to all the mechanisms of power but unlike the Jews their rate of interest isn't regulated so so in that respect it's like the analogy between a regulated uh, lender and a payday lender or or even a loan shark palatable and unpalatable to put it politely in terms of of actual rules usury does seem or or is uh, regularly prohibited by the church from the late 12th century. Um, Lateran IV Council in 1215 um, says that Jews are not allowed to to lend immoderate usury, and the the immoderate is doing a a, a lot of work. Uh, and what 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 is a moderate rate of interest? Yeah. In general, the Jews of England always seem to have lent money at about uh, two pennies in the pound per week. They give a um, grace period in which interest doesn't accrue at all. So it's only if you default on that obligation that that it starts to accrue, and then it just re- you you just pay. Uh, what what accumulates at the end? So, which compares with uh, Italian finances in, in twelve fifty three. Robert Grossetest on his uh, deathbed. He's on his deathbed for a long time. It runs into quite a few folios in the manuscript <laughs> edition, but uh, and and just gets very angry that that to a Jew you just repay that money, yeah, repay pay the capital plus that interest which is accrued. 
whereas uh, Italians conceal interest within the debt itself. So if you borrow a hundred pounds, sorry, if you would borrow a hundred marks, um, then you'll be ha- have to pay a hundred pounds, no matter whether you pay it the following day or a year's time. So, so there's lots of uh, grey areas, but fundamentally, there's no the the, the the unless you get caught and prosecuted, there's not a great great sense um, that you are going to be stopped from doing this. So, why do the Jews get the bad rep? Is it just plain anti-Semitism? Because it sounds like actually, of all the potential money lenders out there at that time, that's the best rate you're going to get. I mean, fundamentally, you always like the person who is lending you money and giving you a bag of coins. It's quite a different scenario (laughs) when you have to pay pay them back. And that doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, you're not going to quibble about what immoderate usury is when it comes time to pay back. You're still going to begrudge paying. Hmm. And we all know this, or, or those of us that have been to university know this from student loans. We still look glaringly at that line on our payslip which yeah. is student yeah, yeah. loans england it doesn't matter that the money has been spent in the the, the students union long since mm. uh, and that we had a good night we forgot all that um yeah, yeah. Uh, we begrudge the fact that we're, we're doing that so in that respect um it's the same and also quite frankly the church has a lot uh, and commentators generally if everyone's calling somebody a user or, or lending money um, and everyone still today thinks jews lend money um a PR machine's got something right there, mm. just in terms of uh, creating an image. It's not true, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean it's not um, not not what people think. So Donald Trump said enough. It becomes truth. All I'm hearing is that <laughs> Jewish people lend money. <laughs> that sort of attitude. So it sort of sounds kind of surprisingly, perhaps in a way that actually it's there's sort of are quite sort of decent opportunities at that point in england there's obviously like you said obviously negatives and positives but actually there is a stuff there that jews able to get involved in the economy have a certain amount of protection so if you sort of move on a little bit to henry the third 13th century uh which is obviously you know the the key monarch of the 13th century the major figure are there others the, uh, sorry oh yes there's john sorry. Was start, his yeah. father yeah yeah this is outrageous um, so what's his attitude uh, towards, uh, at least sort of early on in his reign to the Jewish community, Jews generally? Is there any sort of difference or change from what's gone before with Henry or is it? I mean, early on, um, it's quite difficult because he's a child. So so in that <laughs> sense, we've got the Regency Council, but also the special position of England means that there's uh, papal influence as well. So in theory, it should actually not be... A brilliant time for the Jews. Papal uh, mandate should be enforced through, through the papal legates. Actually, that doesn't happen. Although in 1218, the wearing of the badge, the tabula, the two tablets of Mosaic law, it is it, uh, an order for the wearing of that is issued by 1220 um, or 1221. Probably every Jew in England and every Jewish community in England has purchased an exemption from that. The the provision about immoderate usury is never put onto the, the English statute book in, in the, the period of the minority. And actually, there's a quite a large issue between the, the papal legate and the, the, the Regency Council that that is not going to happen. Fundamentally, 
the, the civil war means there's no money coming into the crown at all. You're not going to cut off the one that you, one community that you can reliably get money off through, through the payments of fines, uh, never mind taxation. So, so the Jews, although they should be in the worst position of the 13th century there, actually it, it's, it's not too bad because fundamentally the Regency Council is trying to establish or re-establish royal authority as quickly as possible and if you, quite frankly if you can't do that over the jews you can't do it over anyone these are the king's jews if you, mm. you you have to do that quickly and actually they do they do it very effectively in general the uh, prior to 1240 so henry becomes for king in 1216 prior to 1240 it's really a great time to be a, a jew in england it's never never has been and never will be as good they're what the, the, the historian R.B. Dobson called the halcyon years of Anglo-Jewry. And this is when lots of fortunes are made. Everyone's fortunes are on the up. People work together. There's lots of collaboration. Um, there's relatively little persecution. There's very little evidence uh, uh, of ritual murder allegations, although there are a couple. So really, the Jews have never had it so good as the, the, the sort of 1220s and 1230s. And, and in general, Henry seems not to have given them a great deal of thought beyond regular but low-level taxation. We, we see evidence of them in the, the receipt rolls. Not a huge amount, but not an insignificant amount. In 1232, the Domus Conversorum, the House of Converts, is founded by Henry III in London uh, as a place for for, for, for converts to go and to, uh, and to be safe um, and, and to also be, be taught the ways of Christianity. Um, and if nothing else, that incurred the wrath of the historian Nicholas Vincent for being a, a thoroughly stupid financial move because uh, it wasn't a, a, a good decision in that respect, certainly not at the time. The, the finances were not brilliant of the Crown. Obviously, in a local context, things are slightly different. Uh, there is a wave of local expulsions in the 1230s uh, which starts with Simon de Montfort's at uh, Leicester in 1231-2. I think that's unique in English history, actually. It's the only one where he didn't have the authority to issue it or enforce it. So in that respect, uh, it was slightly different. But in the main, we we get a, a wave of local expulsions uh, in the 1230s. It has to be said, not from centres of any great community before. What I was going to say was that we're... Sort of 12, 20, 30s, 40, we're sort of moving into the territory now of um, what I mentioned at the top of the local legend subject that we did on uh, Licorice of Winchester. So could you just, um, for those who haven't listened to that episode, just tell um, us a little bit about who Licorice was and her circumstances. Uh, yes, so Licorice of Winchester is one of the great women of English history. Uh, don't add the caveat, great Jewish women of English history. She's just a great woman. Uh, and if more people knew about her and people like her, we would be much richer as a, a society. But she's born probably in the early decades of the 13th century, probably the first or very end of the 12th century. She appears first in the records of the 1230s. Uh, when she is already widowed um, for, from a man called Abraham of Kent. Um, so there's a Canterbury connection there. And in the late 1230s, there is a bizarre reference where she's um, labelled as Licorice of Kent or Licorice of Canterbury, one of them. And, and she never appears like, like that before or since, but but the, there is just the one reference. And having lived in Canterbury for a while, I, I doubt <laughs> that. Um <laughs> She is really becomes famous or infamous for, from the twelve forty 
uh, from, from 1242. Uh, in that year, one of the greatest Jews of England uh, wants to marry her. The only snag is that he's married to another woman, which is always a snag if you want to marry someone, uh, particularly for the other woman, but uh, if yeah. she doesn't want to get divorced. <laughs> uh, so, so, so this has presented all kinds of problems, uh, and they were married until as late as August uh, 1242. By Jewish law, you cannot force a woman to divorce. It has to be via her own consent. How uh, David managed to get a divorce from from the English Bethden, the English Jewish court, is not clear, but he got it. But then some, Muriel did something spectacularly stupid, which was to, to appeal to the French Bethden. Now, this might have saved the marriage, it might not have done. They do, do seem to have re- reversed the decision. But Henry III had just been spectacularly beaten uh, in the field uh, by Louis IX himself. Um, so in that respect, appealing to a court which was under the jurisdiction of the kings of France was a choice. Uh, it was certainly a choice. I don't, I don't think we can take anything away from her in that respect. Uh, but it, it also meant that Henry got very angry when he found out in Gascony. Um, he was at Bordeaux. David wrote to him saying this is what would happen, presumably. He writes back and, uh, and says the uh, decision of the original court is to be upheld, i.e. the divorce is to come through. He can marry whoever he wants or not. It's entirely up to him. Uh, the, the court is not to um, bother him. And then Muriel and others are summoned before Walter de Grey, Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, people have always focused on the Archbishop of Canterbury. Actually, that's relatively unimportant. He was a justicia, the king's uh, representative. So what, if any, marital bliss there is, is unclear, whether it was just business or anything. They have one child and then uh, David promptly expires in 1244. So she has a really long widowhood. Unlike a lot of the great women of the medieval period, that's where it really, when we see her coming to her own, um, she appears in the records regularly for, from the 1240s. Uh, despite what people say, she she isn't well documented as a moneylender beyond in the, uh, the, the, the litigation records of the Exchequer of the Jews. So she's incredibly litigious. We just don't know a great deal about independent individual uh, transactions, but she has um, dealings with all of the great men and women of the day, including Henry III. She is incredibly well-connected. Um, Winchester has very much peaked as a Jewish community in the 12th century, so it's really a regional hub uh, by the 13th century and certainly the later 13th century. But, but she drags it up a, a, a notch, uh, and, and she's really an important local figure until the 1270s. She also has some incredibly uh, important children, of whom the most famous is Benedict Winchester, who becomes a guildsman, the only uh, guildsman in England who is a Jew. But Licorice ultimately dies in 1277. Uh, Her body is discovered in her house in Winchester with her Christian maid. Uh, They've been stabbed and it's all very sad and there's quite a lot of legal wrangling and her relatives are accused of it at one point. But in, in the end, it, it, it's a um, just a tragic end to a, an otherwise amazing stellar career and life. And a, a lot of the older historiography focused on men. Actually, what we've seen in recent years is a blossoming of research on women as well. And uh, there are lots of really amazing women whether Licorice is first among equals or, or, or a step above is unclear, but certainly she's one of those uh, who can hold her, who hold her own with any man and any male Jew of the period. I guess she's also a sort of very good example of you know the success that it's possible 
to have in Henry's reign. But equally, it sort of feels like some of her success is starting to be almost counter to some of what's going on, sort of, sort of middle the 13th century onwards and we mentioned him earlier but it feels like is Simon de Montfort quite an important factor in that turning or the Baron's War perhaps because it seems like they've got objections to Henry having this sort of independent source of wealth uh, yes, so I don't think actually Simon de Montfort is terribly important in that at all, actually. Um, Henry has uh, systematically exploited the Jews for their resources from 1240s. So with the, the 1220s and 30s are the, the period of low level, irregular taxation. 1240 is really the year that that changes. It becomes incredibly high level uh, and incredibly regular. So between 1240 and 1255, the Jews pay 100,000 marks into the real coffers, another 10,000 marks to Richard of Cornwall, and God knows how much in Queen's gold. So um, the the fortunes of the greatest Jews mm. are all but, but broken by this. David of Oxford dies at just the point that he doesn't have to suffer the mm. indignity of that. A Jew called Aaron of York is not. He dies in 1268, but in 1240, he's the richest Jew in England. He occupies the office of Presbyter Judeorum, the Archpriest of the Jews, uh, the highest office that a Jew in England and could, could occupy. In 1255, he has to be excused from his tallage ob- obligations by Richard of Cornwall on account of his poverty. And a decade later, the final indignity of this once great mm. magnate was that he died with more or less without comment in the sources. Mm. So, so he's, re- he's representative of the elite. I don't think he's representative of the middling class. I think they're, they're largely protected. Um, in general, those who can pay most do. Which might seem like an odd concept, uh, (laughs) uh, which I should skate over quite quickly. But in general, there are mechanisms in place to ensure that the richest pay the most and those who can least afford to don't pay anything. So in that respect, by the time uh, of the Barons' War, the the, the financial back of the Anglo-Jewish community has been broken. Now, Simon de Montfort doesn't help that even if I don't think he was quite the villain that has been made out in the historiography. So he certainly have evidence of the the Jews being attacked during that period. The Jews are also conspicuously absent from the period 1258 to 1264 uh, in the period of reform. Hmm. So the provisions of Oxford don't mention them at all, for example. The the Treaty of Paris does. um, That that is in the very specific context of the Crown's abuse of, uh, of Jewish debts as opposed to Jews themselves much in the, the, the same way that Magna Carta was in 1215. So actually, the, the what we would expect to see in this period is that the Jews being at, uh, the, the, the barons arguing for increasingly heavy regulation of the Jews. We don't see that at all in that period. So that's odd and has never really been tackled in, in the scholarship, and I'm trying to at the moment. In February 1264, Worcester is sacked, Quite a lot of emphasis is given to the attack on the, the, the jury at that point. Actually, what the Annals of Worcester say is that the entire city of Worcester, saving only the cathedral, was put to the sword. So it's Christians and Jews. Mm. And actually, it's very difficult to tell the difference between the two in terms of houses, because really they both look the same. Mm. Uh, they live amongst each other. There's no ghettos. So how if you're going to attack an area of a, a medieval city... There's no arrow pointing to to the Jews' houses or the Jewish bit uh, where you can conveniently go attack, burn, pillage, whatever. Mm. 
uh, and then leave. Actually, it's an incredibly messy business. So most of these attacks include Christians. There is an attack on the London jury in April around Palm Sunday. That is, the, as far as I can tell, the only attack uh, on the Jews which um, Simon de Montfort himself countenanced uh, uh, and the annals of Dunstable make clear why uh, he was at St Albans going to to try and rescue his son who'd just been captured when news reached him that the Jews were planning to to seize the city and burn it down with Greek fire um, and everyone focuses on the Greek fire because Greek fire is generally cool yeah it, it's just one of those rules of history that as soon as you get Greek fire everyone is interested but <laughs> the problem is that no one ever focuses on the following sentence which is and they have uh, keys to the gates of the city and tunnels mm. to get to them now the problem with that is that the Jews are resident in the city so they don't need keys to get in the issue is let other people in, and these are the king's Jews. So, like it or not, there's this perception that that London is with us, but we've got this group within the city who potentially aren't. Whether they're the king's Jews or the Lord Edward's Jews at this point isn't entirely clear because they have been mortgaged to the Lord Edward. Um, so, either way, I, I mean, we shouldn't uh, chuckle at the Lord Edward. He 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 doesn't uh, deserve deserve <laughs> that level of mockery. Um, but. <laughs> mortgaging people yes it, yes it, the jewish community or rather their wealth has been mortgaged yeah. uh, to, to to edward um, and basically i think that's the reason because there's a, a, a royal garrison at rochester certainly that if someone can open the gates simon then is trapped between northampton and the royal forces in london and that's not a nice situation to be in. with the victory at lewis that actually simon's in an incredibly difficult position in april 1264 so he has to take out one of them, and, and he goes to the Jews, secures London. Um, and as far as I can tell, that's the last time that the Jews are attacked by Simon himself. Gilbert de Clare attacks the Canterbury jury uh, a week or so later, with people returning from the, 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 the siege of Rochester. Uh, and then as soon as we ha have Lewis, Simon issues letters of safe conduct. And those are... Uh, more or less observed. Uh, you may disobey Henry III's orders relating to the Jews. It would be a stupid man or woman who disobeyed Simon de Montfort. He would enforce it. If he issued an order of safe conduct, he expected it to, to be observed, and he did enforce these. Um, so it's really in that Evesham uh, period when the Jews become vulnerable again uh, in 1265. So really after the escape of Edward in April... April-ish, mm. let's go April, but this tends to be by his son to, to draw Edward away from his father. It, it doesn't work ultimately because Edward is first able to take out Simon Jr. at Kenilworth and then uh, Simon the Senior at uh, Evesham, but, but as a tactic it is not, I mean it's not palatable, but at the same time it makes sense militarily. But the, the, the finances have already been broken by mm. uh, at this point, and, and to be honest, the the, de the the barons are much more concerned about going after um, the records of debt, which they do very effectively. So at Lincoln, for example, uh, they never get to the Jews, uh, but they do get to the Arca, which they uh, take the, the the debts out of, stamp them underfoot, and then burn them for good measure. So so in the wealth rather than the people, and I think that's something which is often missed as well. Jews rely on a, the, the security of a stable government to uh, to protect them, and actually it's at those weakest points when, when they're not protected. So as soon as we get the, the dictum of Kenilworth in 1267, actually the Jews aren't fundamentally uh, attacked again by rebels, and um, that, that secures them.
It's interesting that there's this perception of Simon de Montfort then. You'd almost expect it to be the other way around, that he's fated as a hero, but then people point out a less salubrious aspect of his character. So what's the reason for this? Why have we sort of labelled him in this way if it's not so accurate? He is, on the one hand, uh, the founder of Parliament in the popular imagination. He's reshapes the English constitution. He does all of this good stuff. And then the stick with which you beat him is the Jews uh, in that respect. I think also there was an article in 1905 which effectively set the model for discussing uh, Simon de Montfort. It was written by a Jewish scholar and it had a very specific mandate. It, it was going for Simon de Montfort mm-hmm. quite quite severely. Um, and I think people have been a bit concerned about the implications of, of then challenging that. So no medieval historian has really looked at uh, Simon and the Jews. They've, ju- they've just... Uh, they, they, they've just followed Levy in that respect, which, which has cre- presented a lot of uh, problems. Superficially, there's nothing wrong with the argument. It's when we get deeper. Certainly, once you do dig in as a medieval historian and trained as a medieval historian to, to work on those records, actually, and not everything is clear-cut as it, it appears. And actually, Simon de Montfort is... There's some very terrible things to happen to the Jews during his time. There's no denying that. But there's more than enough blame to go around. Mm. Gilbert de Clare is a, is a horrible man, Earl of Gloucester. There's a uh, man called William de la Har, who, as far as I can tell, participates in all but one attack on the Jewish uh, Jewish community four five, including Winchester, to whom his uh, which had been trusted to his protection. <laughs> so, um, and no one's ever heard of him. Now, why is this? Why why does Simon get get the the bad rep? He has a university named after him. Mm-hmm. He has a statue in the in the middle of Leicester. There are obvious visible things to to attack, uh, and perhaps that's why Gilbert and uh, William haven't been suffered the the same uh, critique in the modern world. The, uh, beyond uh, the walls of academia, they aren't terribly well known. To, to the extent that it deserves to be, and then in very specific contexts, whereas Simon is much more prominent, has always been a, a put forward as the greatest mm. and the worst mm. that England has to offer. It just it depends uh, mm. which, which argument you're trying to sell. Well, I mean, that uh, that sort of phrase, the greatest uh, and the worst, I think uh, leads us on quite nicely to uh, another man who has a, a certain amount of reputation uh, in this field, uh, so Henry the Third dies in 1272. Very and, sad. Uh, very sad, and uh, he is succeeded by Edward the First, who uh, favourite. One or two people might have heard of. From what's happened up to this point, then, like you're saying, we've had all of this heavy taxation that's actually done an awful lot of economic damage um, to sort of the top level uh, people in the Jewish community. So. I guess what's the deal with Edward the First <laughs> and the Jews? Then, like, does he have a particularly different bent to his father, or is it more that a lot of damage has been done and there's there isn't really anything to protect there in quite the same way that benefits him? So, what's Edward's attitude? Yes, I mean Edward. Edward is always very different from his father in, in lots of ways, but fundamentally, for the first two years, nothing changes. He doesn't return from the Crusades until August twelve seventy four. And really, that's the best bit of Edward's reign for the Jews. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I, I, that's that everyone's to take a stand on. to argue with that, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it all 
it, it all changes very quickly upon his return. Uh, so, 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 so to the fifteen months after his return is particularly challenging for for England's Jews. In sort of the autumn of twelve seventy four, he imposes a, the Great Tallage on the Jews, which, which um, establishes. Um, the, the Jews are to pay a third of their movables. Sometimes in the records, it, it's, it's called the tallage of twenty-five or twenty thousand marks, but but certainly they they they're charged an exceptional amount of money uh, in that period. They probably don't have the money to pay anywhere near twenty thousand marks, to be honest. But it it, it, it charges it anyway. Uh, in January, they're expelled from his mother's dower towns, uh, so places like Cambridge, uh, Worcester. Um, Marlborough, he expels them from there. And then in sort of the spring, uh, the Parliament enforces a statute of the jury to stop lending money at usury by uh, the Feast of St Edward, so the 13th of October, reinforces the Jewish badge, the tabula. Uh, it says that to live in specific places which have an archer, um, that to, to uh, work with their hands uh, rather than money. Uh, so... so this is a real turning point, uh, th- this 15-month period. Uh, and sort of, it, it, it's why I think that we should also call him not just Malleus Scotorum, but Malleus uh. Judeorum. Um, uh. Uh, and uh, yes, so I- I'm sure that will be sort of the subtitle for this episode, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and then um, you'd think that was, were that, that very much bottomed out. Actually, it then gets worse uh, for mm. the Jews. Uh, so in 1278-9, there are the coin-clipping trials, uh, which see hundreds of Jews imprisoned at the Tower of London, more than 100 executed on largely trumped-up charges of coin-clipping, so clipping the, the edges off the coins and making new ones or whatever. Um, and because lots of Jews have uh, professions which bring them into contact with coins more than perhaps other groups would, actually this makes them incredibly susceptible to that, to, to that charge. Uh, ultimately, I think even Edward recognises this is trumped up um, mm-hmm. in that he uh, stops the trials, um, stops the executions and just says that people can pay fines. Just pay me lots of money instead. It's mm-hmm. fine. Let justice be served. Yes, I'm sure that was a great comfort to the hundreds of Jews that were executed as well. Um and then sort of in 1290, he expels them from England as the first national expulsion of any Jewish community in Europe, uh, which again is a record. I don't think you can take that away from Edward. Surely the world then. Quite. Oh, no, hang on. Egyptians. Oh, they ran away. Oh, and also there's a sea. Well, yeah. Well. So I guess that, so I mean, they, I mean, it's hard to get into such a man's head, but... Is it all coming from Edward? Is he a sort of virulently anti-Semitic? Is it the influence of his mother and wife, Eleanor of Provence, Eleanor of Castile, who, like you said, his mother um, expels the Jews from her land. Eleanor of Castile sort of seemed to have a, a links to Jewish uh, moneylenders, but then moves against them. Is it Parliament, other stuff going on? Is it completely out of sync with what's happening elsewhere in Europe? Like you said, that England is the first country, but is it completely in contrast, or is this sort of a general thing that's happening in Christendom. I mean, as as much as I'd like to to spend the next hour beating Edward and his historical no. reputation with a stick, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure we can blame it on him entirely. Although it certainly wouldn't happened without his countenance, we can, we can certainly say that. So he'd uh, spent since 1286 to 1289 uh, in Gascony, 
he borrows a fantastic amount of money from Italians to fund that. So in that respect, he needs money. He writes to Parliament and they do what they've always done in the 13th century, which is say no. <laughs> the, 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 uh, I mean, the, the history of financing or royal finance in the, the 13th century is, uh, is, is Parliament saying no, so then going to the Jews, because you don't need parliamentary consent to tax the Jews fundamentally. But quite frankly, such is the extent of the, the, the borrowings that no, nothing short of uh, parliamentary intervention would help with this. Uh, so he uh, goes back to England personally, asks twice, the first time Parliament say no to his face, which I, I, I think they deserve brownie points for <laughs> telling Edward to sod off. And then the second time, uh, they are largely seem to be in favour of this. And the, um, the Edict of Expulsion is issued on the 18th of July, shortly after one of these Parliaments started meeting. And historians have long drawn attention to to uh, the fact that shortly thereafter, Parliament grants uh, the single largest lay subsidy of the entire Middle Ages to Edward, and then in the winter also the church um, the the church uh, grants a, a percentage as well. Uh, and it seems to be driven uh, according to that argument by the Knights of the Shire, the people who've suffered most under under Edward's um, and Henry the Third's blessed memory policy to royal debt uh, to jewish debt sorry they've uh, created a situation where although jews can't claim the lands there's a massive trade in uh uh jewish debts which means other people like eleanor of castile are purchasing them and enforcing them on the lands when they can't repay um so they've lost an all through the crown's policy towards jewish debts and ultimately when it push comes to shove they've got a strong negotiating permission uh, position, we will grant you a ta- massive tax if you grant us the expulsion. The the, bar- the senior barons have tended to move away by the 1260s from Jewish credit, so they ask for something different, and ultimately Edward screws them, uh, because the Knights of the Shire are intelligent enough to wait until they receive what they want before acquiescing to the, the, the grant, whereas the, knight, uh, the barons say, yeah, let's do it, um, and then as so, so he gets their consent before they've got what they want. And that's always a stupid thing to do with Edward, quite frankly. <laughs> and so, so that is certainly, I, I think, one of the more convincing uh, explanations for it. There have also been other uh, explanations. So, uh, one of the ones that is, is particularly interesting is links to persecution and weather phenomena. So, so there's is in, in sort of around this period and, and when you think about it actually there, there, there are important links to this because why is God uh, uh, why is God causing the harvest to fail fundamentally mm. is it the Jews do you want to risk it by mm. keeping them or, or shall we just see what happens if we <laughs> expel them Look, if you've got lots, lots of climatic change and failed harvest actually to a medieval mind it makes some sense the, there's currently uh, investigations going on whether Eleanor of Castile had more of an input than people have thought. But generally, I think the parliamentary taxation one does make a lot of sense. Otherwise, why do we get the single grant of taxation uh, shortly thereafter? Uh, in terms of exceptionality, the kings of France had issued uh, edicts of expulsion from the 1180s. Uh, it's just that only applies to the Ile de France. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, so, so in that respect, that's the difference. It's a scale rather than the um, 
than anything else. And ultimately in 1306, and then repeatedly throughout the 14th century, uh, French kings would issue expulsions. So he's not massively ahead of the curve. It's just uh, no one's ever done it. And actually, I think what the interesting thing is not that he does it, but that he sticks. Because if you expel the Jews, there's no reason why they have to stay gone. And actually, we see in France that they come back fairly regularly. I mean, they were expelled in the 1180s and then there for the most of the 13th century. Then uh, the 20-year uh, intervals in the early 14th century, they tend to get expelled. So it's, uh, the, the, the longevity of the expulsion is uh, is particularly interesting. Uh, and there's just not the, the political or economic will to bring them back after that. And then, then it's not until Oliver Cromwell, fundamentally in the 1650s, that they do come back. Uh, and ultimately, they argue that, well, they still can't get the political will to bring them back fundamentally, but Cromwell has this wonderful thing where uh, they're, they're trying to stick everything to the king. So, so if it's not issued by an act of parliament, it doesn't. It, it, it's just not valid. So the, the Edict of Expulsion was issued by the king, not the uh, parliament. So actually, it had never been enforced but <laughs> in the first place for, from the perspective of the 1650s. So, uh, so, so in that respect... That's a cop out, but fundamentally, the the will isn't there even in the 1650s, and Cromwell probably couldn't have swung it without that nice bit of mm. political dangling. Hmm. What is the Jewish population? Well, I mean, we don't know exactly, I'm sure, but in 1290, like how many people is this, and where do they actually all go? I was going to ask that. Yeah, the the first question is much easier to answer than the second. <laughs> I um, itemised directions by number. <laughs> yes. Um, so 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 the. The Jewish population seems to have peaked in the early 13th century, so that 1220s and 30s period. Mm. It's about 5,000 compared to a couple of million Christians. Um, so, so very small minority. But at the, the end of the the, the, the uh, century, it's probably closer to 2,000, 3,000 at most. So, in, uh, and Edward's reign has just exacerbated a, a trend which was already mm. in progress. It, we, it is, we can't blame everything on Edward. Um, well, we could, but, as... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yes, it, it, the numbers have probably been on the decline for, for, for quite a while, for various reasons, not the least of which is people just leave uh, if they can uh, and have the, the, the resources to do so as well. Probably 2,000, 3,000 at most by the time they leave. Where they go is difficult to say. The King of France says, you're not welcome here, which as a closest neighbour is not helpful. Hmm. In reality, some Jews are there, and we've got wonderful evidence for, from the 12, end of the 1290s of Parisian uh, taxation records, which include uh, such and such a Jew, des Anglais, um, or des Angleterres. Oh, yeah. uh, so, so we see them there. Now, it is, it's a law of diminishing returns there, because the further away you go from the expulsion, the less likely they are to be, to be known by their English name. They're just going to adopt wherever they go to. In, in terms of other places, they do seem to have gone to the south of France, not just for the sun and the wine, but also because you have close connections with, with peripheral Jewish communities, as it were, as opposed to the main communities of France and Germany. And some people have found evidence as far afield as Morocco and Cairo. Wow. Wow. Again, isolated evidence, diminishing returns, but at least some of them went into the sun compared to rainy britain <laughs> yeah i would so they just went um but if uh, france is then alternately 
you know punting them out as well is this where we get uh um exodus east yes um so so fundamentally the the geography of uh medieval jewry changes entirely over the later medieval period so in the so sort of prior to the end of the 13th century there's a, a north south divide with everything more or less very roughly north of the loire being ashkenaz um, and south sephardi uh jews that becomes a, an east-west divide mm. um, in, in the following centuries. So, so particularly in Eastern Holy Roman Empire, Poland get a massive uh, Jewish communities out of uh, these. Uh, there's really good evidence for Austria uh, and Austrian Jews, which is delightful and well worth looking at because it is it, just very rich for the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, so all of these Eastern communities really have their origins to draw in the, the great expulsions early 14th centuries that you get large Ashkenazi communities in the east and then again it changes in in the 1490s with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain so so they then go north obviously to the new world as well to, to some extent but certainly north to places like the Netherlands where there's just that a bit more tolerance for them and ultimately then back to England uh, as a nice circuitous thing but but yes uh, the, the 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 geography changes uh, entirely and that's why people always look confused if they know modern jewish uh, communities in modern geography actually you, you it's much easier to know the medieval thing and to work out how everything gets to mm. everywhere <laughs> mm. um and, and that's why some things just don't make sense um about how the the geography of jews unless you actually understand these medieval origins they go there for a reason that reason is it they, they just progress pushed progressively for and in that respect they do have a much longer and um, history there whether, whether that's better or worse i don't know uh, but certainly that the, these great expulsions result in that change in dynamic well dean thanks so much for talking to us all about that it's been really really interesting thank you yeah. for having me <laughs> it's great to see you again as well yes and you <laughs> no me this time though yeah. uh how can people uh, follow you on social media if they want to uh twitter at at medieval jews so it does what it says on the tin uh, <laughs> fundamentally i tweet about medieval jews and to a lesser extent being grumpy and northern uh, but, but mainly i'm there for the jews and come for the jews and stay for anything else uh, i do a debt a day so an only stay type most days when i remember excellent well thank you so much again uh, for coming on and all those years ago for the um history according to ali <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much. That Gospel really... according to Ali now, I appreciate it. Since then, the web of contradictions in Ali since then. Oh, <laughs> Awful. But yeah, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Cheerio, Dean. Bye. So that was Dean Irwin on the Anglo-Jews in Medieval England. Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 150 bonus episodes at Patreon.com forward slash RexFactor, including, of course, our local Legends episode on Licorice of Winchester that we uh, mentioned and touched on in this episode oh yeah will we have released that by then uh yes we will 
And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Eliza Blanchard, Robin McHugh, Griffin Clary, Adria Rose, Heather Hill, Emma McCoy, Monica Welker, Dan Cowie, Siobhan Flanagan, Matthew Hughes, Kendra Feliski, Juliana Longo, Elise McClanahan, Rachel Cullum, Lindsay Baker, Michaela DeClaire, Kathy Chumley, Tab Dicko, Susie Ahmed, Cam Macharbonnier, Dan Ayer, Rosemary Murphy, Crystal Lee, Krista Torbert, and Amy Warrod. Hello, Arise. Get thee your link from Patreon for the Discord. Great big chinwag. So that is all from us today. Next time it will be another interview episode and we will be back on the Tudors talking to Professor Susanna Lipscomb about all things Henry VIII and his six wives. Cheerio.